Today on Main Calling, our favorite car gurus talk EVs, industry trends, and winter driving. Last week, General Motors announced an about-face when it comes to its plan for hybrid vehicles. The legacy automaker had said it planned on prioritizing EVs and foregoing hybrids, but now will soon reintroduce some hybrids to its line of cars. A partnership between Hyundai and Amazon is underway to allow buyers to shop for cars on Amazon. And Tesla recalls more than 2 million cars because of the size of a font. Yes, you heard that right. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, we will discuss those stories from the automotive world, and we'll get answers to your car questions from our two favorite autophiles, John Paul of AAA and Jamie Page Eaton of Car Talk. Main Calling is just ahead. Main Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. This show is all about answering your automotive questions. We'll get up to speed on news from the auto industry, winter driving safety, repairs, electric vehicles, and more. Joining me to answer your questions, John Paul, Senior Manager of Public Affairs and Traffic Safety with AAA Northeast, and Jamie Page Deaton, Editor-in-Chief at cartalk.com. We invite you to join the conversation. Send an email to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on our Facebook or Instagram pages, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3500. Six, six. Jamie, John, welcome back. It's been a while. I'm going to start how I usually do and ask you what you've been driving lately as members of the automotive motive press. What cars have you or trucks have you gotten to spend some time with? What have you liked and not liked? Jamie. So um, I most recently just spent a week in the Subaru Outback wilderness. And I mean, you know, it's a I really like it because it's a Subaru and it does exactly what Subaru promised. It's easy to drive. It handles, I mean, even though I'm outside of DC, we have had a little bit of snow. It handled it just fine. Plenty of space for kids and dogs, really nice, durable interior. Um, And so that was one where I was like, all right, you know, it's not anything that's particularly flashy or exciting, but it does exactly what it is designed to do. One that was uh, not as as much fun was a couple weeks ago, I was in uh, the Land Rover Range Rover Velar, and that is just kind of like a tall, expensive, and pudgy station wagon. Um, this has never been one of my favorites, and it just for the money, there are so many better cars you can buy. And while the you know the the Range Rover badge is is really nice and certainly has a lot of cachet, um, this is just one model where Land Rover just kind of missed a little bit. I really don't see the point when there's so many other great Land Rover models and. Finally, I have not driven it yet, but today I am getting a Chevrolet Corvette dropped off at my house. Fun. And 
cannot wait. That's a mid-engine um, and there's nothing I like more than a mid-engine car. I've been able to drive it um, before at various events, but never for this long. Um, so I'm really, really looking forward to impressing my nine-year-old son's friends with it um, and then just also having a good time with it and, you know, hoping that it lives up to my expectations because they're pretty high. So, you know, next time I'm on, I'll tell you how the Corvette was. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. I was going to ask you what your kids are going to think of this, because often I have a feeling that they, they could care less what you're driving. Oh, no, they get super spoiled um, by what I'm driving. The number of times they said, like, Mom, these back seats aren't heated. This is terrible. Give this car <laughs> a bad review. And I'm just like, guys. Well, you know, you should know what crank windows are like or, oh, mom, why does only the driver's seat have massage? And I'm like, well, because only the driver's going through stress right now. Shut your mouths and be grateful. But um, I mean, they didn't. I will say even with the uh, Subaru Outback, as much as I love luxury cars, they both were saying, hey, there's plenty of room back here. And like, this is really comfortable. This is nice. So uh, Subaru Outback kid approved. And I'm sure the Corvette will. Um, be hit approved as well, uh, presuming that, you know, we can get that passenger seat airbag switched off so they can ride in it safely. All right. Well, John, what about you? Tell us about uh, your recent experience with newer cars and trucks. Well, I drove something that's almost a unicorn of sorts. It was the absolute base model Ford Maverick pickup truck. So it had steel wheels, no cruise control, the MSRP on it was, I think, under $20,000. Uh, it was a phenomenal truck, as so much so that I actually called up Ford and asked them if I could buy it afterwards. Um, it was just a great gas mileage, great utility, just just and pretty fun to drive too. So it, it worked out. It worked out really good. So it was one of those cars that, you know, I really, I really did like it. I really did enjoy driving it and i and not just because of the yankee frugality i guess i i i just i thought it was i thought it was good it did everything it needed to do i've i've driven the fancier versions but this was the first time that i ever drove the absolute base version and the hybrid hybrid engine got great gas mileage had plenty of plenty of power for what i needed to do and it had the little cargo box in the back which worked out really well the other vehicle i've driven recently was the infinity qx60 it happened to be in the kind of fancier sensory all-wheel drive version it and infinity vehicles have never done a whole lot for me but this one is pretty good mid-sized three three row luxury suv um the same engine they used a three and a half liter engine they use on a lot of vehicles makes almost 300 horsepower so even with the weight of the vehicle was good every conceivable um electronic feature i think possible you know including you know forward emergency braking with pedestrian uh detection uh forward collision warning it kind of predicts if you're going to need to apply the brakes um rear automatic braking which actually works surprisingly well this is one of the first vehicles that seemed to actually work well and you know if somebody walked behind the car it would it would slow down where some of them it seems like falses quite a bit um driver attention alert which a lot of vehicles are starting to have now this one seemed to be pretty good and it could be me sometimes, but it seems like I get into one of these cars and I drive it for 15 seconds and it says time to take a break. But this one seemed to be, this one seemed, seemed to get along with me. Um, a lot of different versions of it, um, but it was kind of nice because it has a second row captain's chair. So rear seat uh, 
passengers are comfortable. And I like the idea too, the seats in it were really good and comfortable. Um, Infinity calls them zero gravity seats and it really feels like it would be a nice long distance cruiser. So um, as much as I don't usually gravitate to Infinity vehicles, I like this one a lot. John, did Ford let you buy the Maverick? No. Aw, <laughs> sorry to hear that. Well, well, let's talk about that because we've talked on um, when you all have been guest passed about how the Ford Maverick is one of those car, those trucks um, that's really going to change things. And um, like in you know, the Volkswagen Beetle or the Toyota Prius, one of those um, vehicles that really makes people think about driving differently. Um, it is a hybrid. And uh, Jamie, one of the big news items in the last sort of news cycle has been um, GM's rethinking their attitude towards hybrids. Bring us up to speed on that. Well, I mean, you know, the thing when it comes to, you know, hybrids and EVs um, and, and all these kind of changes that a lot of people, I think, would like to see in the way um, the ways that Americans drive is that the market really isn't following what um, a lot of car companies are investing in um, and in honestly what um, you know a lot of the government would like people to do and, you know it's interesting when you bring up um, the Ford Maverick because you know like John I think this is one of the best cars out there um, but that said you know most people are still gravitating towards large SUVs, large pickup trucks, um, just it seems kind of culturally, um, you know, no matter how expensive gas gets sometimes, no matter how much, um, you know, we like to say that we care about, you know, climate change and CO2 emissions, um, when it comes down to it, people really like their big cars. And so a lot of car companies are rethinking their strategy as they approach hybrids and EVs. They know they've got to do it um, to make those transitions to meet some government mandates. But at the same time, they want to do it in a way where they can remain profitable and sell products that, you know, the American driver is actually going to buy. And John, I want to let you um, share your thoughts on how the industry is going when it comes to um, EVs and hybrids. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, kind of following Jamie's line of thought, um, it really is, you know, the the push towards hybrids was really driven by the government and not so much by buyers. And although, you know, in California, you know, it's been said that, you know, one out of every 10 cars is an EV. But depending where you live, an EV might not work for you. I mean, where I where I live, I have I live in a very small house with a basic electrical service. I can't charge at home unless I do it with a 110 volt plug and that takes forever. There isn't, I, I have to drive 23 miles to get to a level three charging station. So unless I'm making it a purposeful trip to go there, to go to the supermarket or something, it doesn't make sense to drive 23 miles to charge up my car and drive 23 miles back home. It makes no sense at all. So when you look at how the market has adopted electric vehicles you know at first the early adopters who who like to get evs and like to get the latest thing you know the latest you know apple watch or whatever the case is and then eventually things start to slow down a little bit i still say that and this does not surprise me that gm is rethinking hybrids because at some point the vehicle manufacturers even if the government says by the year pick whatever it is 2035 all your vehicles that should be electric vehicles are electric vehicles well that's only going to work if it if it works financially and 
if it doesn't work financially, if stockholders look at their stock and go, this isn't going to work, the manufacturers are going to go back to the government and say, look, it, it just doesn't work. And that, that happened, you know, over the years with cafe fuel standards where they said, look, we just can't do it. Sorry. We just, we tried, but we couldn't do it. And I think that's part of what we're going to see here. And just to be clear, we're talking about the move toward electric, that hybrids, uh, people are buying hybrids. Right. They're just right. not buying electric vehicles in the um, numbers that that, yeah. that many were hoping. And, and I do want to note that we will be talking all about electric vehicles in Maine on February 21st, Maine Calling Show. So, um, you know, I don't want to have this entire program be about EVs. But, Jamie, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, let's, I mean, be honest here, like they're buying hybrids without even knowing that they're buying hybrids. And a lot of what um, automakers are using a lot of this gas electric um, technology for is not necessarily for fuel savings, but to improve performance. So if you look at, um, for example, like the Land Rover Defender, there's a hybrid version of that, which is a large SUV. It guzzles a lot of gas. The hybrid's not that much better. And what it's really about is that hybrid system kicks in for better acceleration. And, and sure, it, it saves some gas, um, but it's paired, you know, with a large gas engine. Um, but, you know, to John's point, like when you're talking about an EV, the infrastructure is just not there for the vast majority of people. And, you know, what I see as a potential miss, both by car companies and by consumers, are plug-in hybrids. Um, so, for example, you know, plug-in hybrids, where those are cars where you can you know, plug it in some of the time, and it also has a gasoline engine. Um, so you can get, you know, 30, 40 miles on an electric charge and then have, you know, just run on gas when that charge is done. Um, which makes it an almost ideal bridge solution for the vast majority of Americans, particularly, as John notes, if you have a good place to charge it. So, you know, if you have um, a house, you know, with a garage where, that's, where your electrical system can handle it, and there are a lot of really good tax breaks for upgrading your electrical system to put in a charger, you can plug in one of these, you know, plug-in hybrids overnight. And for your day-to-day -day driving, you're covered and you're, you're not going to be emitting any um, carbon at the, you know, at the tailpipe. But when you're out and about and you're on a road trip, you have that gas engine and you don't have to worry about, oh, does this Airbnb have a charger? Are there going to be, you know, am I going to be stuck behind a bunch of people at a charging station waiting hours for my turn? Um, and so like this is the area where, you know, if you're trying, if you're thinking about going electric, um, but are worried about infrastructure, really check out the plug-in hybrids um, because they're an excellent option where you get kind of the best of both worlds. And that's something where um, I would really be great to see more manufacturers leaning into this um, while we wait for kind of the infrastructure to catch up. Because that's one thing that, you know, current policy has missed is it's really pushed the manufacturers towards EVs, but hasn't really done anything on the infrastructure side to say push, you know, fuel, uh, you know, gas stations to add EV chargers and things like that. So there's half of the equation is missing, um, but a plug-in hybrid, if you want to go electric, but are worried about um, that infrastructure, plug-in hybrid is the way to go. I have two questions about plug-in hybrids, Jamie, and then we have to go to a break. The first is, um, if you have a plug-in hybrid and then you find that you are only doing local errands and you're only on electric, is it bad for the car to have, um, or maybe this is a question for you, John, is it bad for a car to have a full tank of gas that just never gets tapped? Eventually what will happen is the car will be smart enough to know that it has to run a little bit and it will use up some of the gas. 
Um, so it's not really a problem. And the fuel tanks in some of the plug-in hybrids are sort of a bladder type thing that doesn't that doesn't um, store air the same way a regular gas tank does. So for the most part, you're not going to run into a problem. Yeah, you can you can kind of look at it and say that um, that you know over time could that fuel go stale but the cars are set up in such a way that they will use up some gasoline and even when you turn the heat or ac on the gas engine may kick on for a minute or two um so yeah you're you're going to use that gas up eventually but it's not unusual i talked to somebody with a, a plug-in prius they swear there have been six or seven months without putting gasoline in the tank so you know would it hurt to throw a little gasoline stabilizer in there probably not and Jamie, the second question I have is, I know that in the beginning, some of the plug-in hybrids, you could just plug in into a regular um, outlet. Uh, they wouldn't charge as quickly, but is that still the case? Or, or do you need to use those tax incentives and get um, your electric in your garage upgraded? I mean, honestly, I would get the electric in my garage updated because lately, whenever I plug in a car in there, it blows half the fuses in my house. But that's just me. And I live in a house from the 70s. No, I mean, you can plug it into a regular outlet. Um, there'll be a converter there. Um, you know, you can put in like a, a dryer outlet, you know, the 210, the 220 volt outlet, which will help it charge a little bit faster. But because with these cars, I mean, you're only looking at, again, like, you know, 20 to 40 miles of electric range, you know, it. If you're if you have it on a 110 volt outlet, yeah, it's going to take all night to charge and you may not even get a full charge. But is it the end of the world because you've got that backup gasoline engine? Um, no. And so it's one of those things where like, yeah, I would probably install a level two charger in my house because the tax breaks are there. Um, they're they're not that unaffordable. I mean, I've seen chargers go for as little as six hundred dollars before tax breaks. Um, so it, it's a nice way to make sure you can charge your car quickly, but you don't necessarily have to have it. I mean, there's a grocery store near me that has level three chargers. Um, and so I can go plug one of these in and then, you know, do my grocery shopping for the week, come out, have a full charge um, and then be good to go. So it really just kind of depends. Um, but overall, yeah, you can use a regular outlet. You can use a, a 220 volt outlet or you can go all the way and have a have a charger installed. Um, it really just depends on, you know, what's right for you and, and your wallet at the time. We do have to go to a break. John, I want to ask you for a winter driving tip since it is February. And even though um, it's not supposed to snow for a few days, we know it will. Uh, we are talking to our car gurus on main calling. Give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or find us on social media. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Our topic today, the latest news from the world of cars, trucks, and SUVs, and also answers to your questions, whether you have a question about maintenance, whether you ought to sell a car, uh, what you might be in the market to buy, give us a call. 1-800-399-3566. Brief email, please. Talk at mainpublic.org or comment on Facebook or Instagram. My guests, Jamie Page Deaton, Editor-in-Chief at cartalk.com, and John Paul, Senior Manager of Public Affairs and Traffic Safety with AAA Northeast. Okay, John, what are the things that this time of year people are not doing that they need to be doing for uh, winter they driving? Need, they, they need to slow down. First off, they need to they need to realize that even though they may be an SUV or a, a four wheel drive pickup truck or, or or an all wheel drive car, 
those vehicles don't stop any better in the snow than any other vehicle does. So I like to tell people, you know, your all-wheel drive SUV will get you up the hill nicely, but going down the hill, they're all the same. They all turn into sleds if you jam on the brakes. And even though anti-lock brakes will allow you to have some control still on snow and ice, it, they help somewhat, but not 100%. Uh, stability control will help a little bit, certainly a little bit more. So um, people follow too closely. They drive too fast. And they don't prepare. Um, even, even people who are really used to winter sometimes don't prepare. And they'll go out in really bad weather and they won't be dressed for the bad weather so having that a little emergency kit in your car with some extra boots and gloves and extra warm jacket and maybe a blanket uh those kind of things very important and people need to think about the right tires for their car just like you wouldn't go out in flip-flops in the snow uh maybe you would i don't know but um probably shouldn't you want to make sure you have the right tires for your car and it always used to be all season tires were so much better than conventional tires but one of the things about all season tires is that they are the same all season tire that you buy in portland is the same all season tire you buy in phoenix so they're kind of a compromise and they're going to be sort of one size fits most and they're going to be okay but they're not going to be a true winter tire and we used to call them snow tires, but winter tires work really good when the temperatures get low. And that's really important. So even if you live someplace where you don't see a lot of snow, but you see cold temperatures, those conventional tires, those conventional all-season tires won't work as well as a good winter tire. And now we're seeing something called all-weather tires. And a few manufacturers are making them. And they actually have the markings of a snow tire, which is this uh, snowflake with a three-peak mountain on the side of it. So they work as well as a true winter tire. But it's a tire you can use all year round, and there's various manufacturers that make them. Michelin makes them, uh, a company called Nokian, which made this kind of legendary snow tire in the past called the Hecapoletta, I think is what it was. Um, but, it, you know, we're starting to see more technology in tires today, and I would rather drive a car with – I would rather drive a front-wheel drive car with all-weather tires on it than drive a – four-wheel drive vehicle with conventional tires on it. They're just going to perform that much better. An email here from Philip. I find I am in need of a camp truck. I need a pickup truck for moving boats around, dump runs, and dirt road traveling. I would like to have something with a rear camera, but beyond that, a basic truck that could pull a 4,000-pound boat are the only needs. I don't think I need a club cab but those are all around these days. We will use it from May to October and then winter it over in the camp garage. I've always bought new vehicles, but it seems a waste not to buy pre-owned for this use. We also have a 2016 Kia Soul with low mileage, less than 20K. Should we trade the Kia for a truck or do two transactions? Okay, Jamie, put yourself in Philip's shoes. What's your advice? I am sitting here trying to remember the towing capacity of various trucks, uh, but <laughs> I'll start with the second question first. 
I mean, if you don't have to trade the Kia in, I wouldn't trade the Kia in because this is a thing that you see a lot of people do where they say, okay, I need a big truck for towing my boat. And that truck becomes their daily driver. And then they end up spending a lot more on fuel. Um, you know, it's a pain in the butt to park in various places. Um, so if you can do, you know, the transaction without needing the, the trade in value of the Kia, I would hang on to the Kia as a daily driver. Um, now, I'm going to caveat that I don't remember every single towing capacity of every single truck out there, um, but I think you'd be fine looking at a mid-sized truck like a Chevy Colorado or a Ford Ranger um, and even possibly um, a Toyota Tacoma. I would say, as John and I have both mentioned, we love the Ford Maverick, but I am not sure that it can tow up to 4,000 pounds. That's the only reason I'm not mentioning it. Um, but these mid-sized trucks now, like the Colorado, like the Ranger, um, and, and like the Tacoma, the only reason that I'm not a huge fan of the Tacoma is I find the driving position um, a little bit odd. Um, that said that, you know, a Tacoma is basically a savings account. You can drive like the, the value doesn't drop, which means you're not going to find a lot of deals on the used market. Whereas compared to the Colorado and the Ranger, you will see some good deals on the used market. But I would go look for um, a Colorado or a Ranger, you know, from the last five years or so. Um, it'd be a great camp trip. Truck, um, for towing the boat, not too big, um, not too small. And you can get some really um, basic models, which sounds like it meets your needs, um, where you don't need a full on, you know, club cab, you don't need a lot of bells and whistles. Um, and you can just use it for a camp truck and, and call it a day. All right, we have, um, okay, we have a note from our executive producer, Maverick non hybrid can tow 4000 pounds. Oh, well, then definitely, Philip, go for the Maverick. No questions. And totally, totally trade trade in the soul on that because the fuel economy is going to be good enough that, that you won't need that daily driver because the Maverick's that good to be a daily driver and tow your boat, take stuff to camp, all that good stuff. Maverick all the way. We have an email here from Marty. I have a feeling you're going to love this one, John. This is right up your, your alley. Are there any camper vans or vans that could be converted to a camper van that are hybrid? Ooh, um, that's, that's Jamie looks like she's all over this one. Um, but it, it is, it is one of the, a camper van that could be a, a hybrid that could be converted to a camper van. I suppose it depends how big you are. You could, you could go out and buy a, uh, a Pacifica. There's a plug-in hybrid and you could probably turn it into something. Um, usually what people are buying is the, um, the Ram, uh, vans or the mercedes vans and they're turning those into campers and when those are fully outfitted um by somebody like winnebago or something they're hundred thousand dollar vehicles and if you have the ability to kind of put that together by yourself you can save some money i over the years i met somebody who has a um a ram van that they did all the conversions themselves and they basically these days travel the country and take a lot of pictures and seem to make money on Instagram. So I'm, I, you know, I don't know how they do it exactly, but uh, they seem to be able to get away with it. But no, I, I, as far as a, as far as a hybrid, I think you would be hard pressed to put things like a bathroom in one in a Pacifica, but it's a possibility. <laughs> Jamie. Yeah. I mean, the thing, with uh, the Pacifica plug-in hybrid is I think if you were to convert it into a van, you would have some issues 
plugging in kind of your living room electrical into the Pacifica setup. Um, however, if you don't want to go full on hybrid, the Volkswagen ID Buzz, which looks like the old DW buses, it's a full on EV that um, is coming out, I want to say in 2025. Mm. Um, and you would definitely win all the hashtag van life um, things over on Instagram because it's going to be very cool looking. And I they've, they have certainly shown a camping concept with the ID buzz. Um, I don't know for sure if they're going to, you know, bring it, out for, bring it out for production. The other thing is it's not in the United States, but you might be able to find one, um, you know, in maybe Canada, maybe Mexico, if you feel like driving, is um, the VW bus has a California trim which is their ready-built camper van trim. Um, because it's not a US-based car, I don't know if it's available as a hybrid, um, but that's one that's kind of out of the box, ready to go, you know, live your hippie dreams in a Volkswagen while you drive around the country. Um, again, I don't know about your toileting needs, um, how that would work in that particular one. Um, but you know, hey, if you're out in the wilderness, there's always a bush, so maybe that solves it. On that note, we're going to take a caller. We're going to go to Ted in Rumford. Hi, Ted. Go ahead. Hello. Um, manufacturers of vehicles now have uh, trended towards putting the entire dashboard as a touchscreen um, for functions and everything, odometers, speedometers. The glare from sun is uh, impossible to, it obscures everything, and also the um, whatever you're looking for, if you have your radio, your speedometer, your mileage, what, what, anything. Uh, has any uh, uh, one looked into this on the national level, the federal level? And also, the secondly, the uh, headlight uh, trend is to narrow these, uh, these lights to a, a sliver, and they only illuminate a rectangular area not a full area. So those two things are what uh, I found to be uh, uh, worrisome and, um, and dangerous. Jamie, is Ted alone? No, um, I don't think anybody is a real big fan of the move to touch screens. Um, you know, if you're trying to drive and you're trying to change the radio station, in some cases you have to go, you know, two menus deep to hit the climate control. Um, and every time um, I think, all right, you know, here comes, you know, this test car, this company has been really good about keeping buttons. No, they've taken buttons away and it's a huge annoyance. Um, and not only, you know, Ted, as you mentioned, is there a huge glare? There's the issue of distractibility. And then um, from kind of the Martha Stewart side of my brain, all you see is fingerprints all over these things. Um, so, no, I'm not aware, though, of the government looking into it. But there is a little bit of a workaround, depending on the model that you have. If you look on and they, this tends to be a little bit more with um, some of the higher end cars, look on the steering wheel, there's usually an icon of basically a, a profile view of someone's head speaking. Um, and if you hit that, a lot of these cars uh, have voice commands um, similar to an Alexa in your home. So for example, if you don't want to go two menus deep, like I drive a Volvo, I don't want to go two menus deep to try and change um, you know, the temperature in the car, I can hit that button and say, set the temperature to 78 degrees, you know, or whatever temperature I want. So that is one workaround. I can also say, you know, set the radio to this station. And that really does help or, you know, switch radio to Sirius XM. Um, that is really, really nice. The headlight, um, you know, 
what Ted is mentioning, I think, runs counter to what we've seen, particularly from data from the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety. Um, you know, what data that they've shown is that modern headlights are much, much better than um, older generation headlights at illuminating the road ahead. And while the design is a little bit of a, of a slit, um, they're able to illuminate much better. And the thing that modern headlights do that older headlights don't is they turn with the steering wheel which um, IIHS has found cars that have this feature have a much lower incidence of accidents, obviously, you know, at night, not, not during the day, because while the lights are turning, you're able to see that place where you're going for an extra couple of seconds. And that's really what you need for reaction time. So if you're coming around a bend and there's a deer there, um, you have that extra second where you're not waiting for the headlight to catch up with the rest of the car. It's illuminated before you complete the turn. Um, and that's something that has really helped um, drop accident rates for cars that have that. So, you know, most of the complaints that I hear about modern headlights are that they're too bright for oncoming cars. And I think that is a little bit of a separate issue. Um, but overall, I don't know anybody who really likes the touch screens, but man, car companies really just keep putting them out there. So we keep buying them, um, I think largely because there's, there's no other option there, but they are definitely not my favorite part of modern car design. John, is there something you wanted to add? I just the thing about um, the voice command stuff and it's probably my voice and it doesn't understand me most of the time. But the other thing uh, we did a bunch of studies at AAA that show that um, it takes your brain sort of shuts off for up to 13 seconds. Once you tell your car to change the radio station because you're waiting for it to happen. Hmm. So for, you know, up to 13 seconds, you may not actually be paying attention to what's going on the, on the road in front of you. So even though that's a little bit of a workaround, and we've also found that that time starts to go down a little bit, the more you use it, but it still is a bit of an issue. And the headlight thing, one of the m most fantastic things about headlights is the rules have changed in the last year or so and we're going to see some adoption of european headlights and the european headlights are a um in the united states we have to have high and low beams and in europe they don't have high and low beams they just have beams and they just turn on and the latest audi has th mm. these headlights in them and what they are is they're a series of bulbs and it could be 13 bulbs on each side of the car and they'll sh they'll turn on and and turn off based on the oncoming traffic to the point where I saw a, uh, a video where there was someone just holding a flashlight and they turned the flashlight on and it dimmed all around the lights, but still had great light, light to the left and the right. When we start to see these lights come into the United States, um, I think it's going to be fantastic. Jamie. So one, one question with that, John, if we don't have high beams, how are we going to blink them to let people know that there's a copa down the road? Because um, <laughs> that's good mainly point. what Jamie, I Jamie, I blink for. them to let someone know they have a headlight out. <laughs> <laughs> no. And well, what does your husband like... say about that anyway? <laughs> oh, he does it too. He's like, but like, I mean, that's the main use of high beams, I thought, was to be like, hey, man, there's a cop down there. Or look out, there's some deer on the side of the road the way you're heading. Um, yeah, how are you going to signal to other drivers? Get out of the left uh, lane. Well, going too well slow. you know, with, with every advancement, maybe there's a step back. All yeah, right. Well, well we see, have... Um, so many questions coming in. I'm going to make you guys stop talking and go to a break. We're talking to our favorite car gurus on Main Calling. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling today on the program, Advice on Cars and Trucks and SUVs. My guest, AAA's John Paul and CarTalk.com's Jamie Page Deaton. If you're quick, you can join our conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to Facebook or Instagram. And yes, brief, please. We have so many questions coming in. But Roberta has one, John, that I think that a lot of people have. So Roberta writes, I live in a condo complex that has underground parking. Some homeowners are opposed to allowing plugins in the garage. They are concerned that plugins have a possibility of their engines blowing up and then conceivably engulfing the other cars in fire. What do you think? Any validity in their concerns? Um, right now, the Ford, uh, one of the Ford models, uh, doesn't recommend plugging them in because they could the battery could catch fire. Um, so certainly that's a possibility, and I think you have to pay attention to potential recalls of of those vehicles. But statistically, electric vehicles don't catch fire any more than gasoline cars do. In fact, less than gasoline cars. So, um, you know, the idea of not plugging in an electric car in an underground parking garage, unless there is an issue with the particular vehicle where they've come out with some recall on it, I don't see why there would be a problem. All right. We're going to go to another question. And Jamie, I think this one is for you. This is an email from Jonathan. He writes, I've seen a Rivian in Bangor. What do you know about that make, origins, et cetera? Oh, so Rivians, I absolutely love these, but full disclosure, I have not driven one. Um, so Rivian is a brand new car company. It was um, started by, you know, in, in contrast to Tesla, Rivian is led by and run by people who have automotive experience, um, you know, in terms of building and manufacturing cars. Um, the Rivian, they make uh, trucks, they make SUVs, um, they have really interesting, a little bit polarizing design. Um, they have these headlights that are a little bit cartoony. Um, but overall, from talking with people who have owned them, um, one of my good friends has one. He cannot stop raving about it. You can get up to 300 miles on a single charge. Um, and they really are just very nice, very useful SUVs. And then there's a little bit um, of a, you know, having your cake and eating it too with it, because you can have a large SUV that can hold the whole family, or you can have a pickup truck. Um, and you don't have to be using a whole lot of gas doing it. You don't, you won't be using any gas because they're EVs. I will say they are expensive. I think that's one downside to them. Like any kind of, um, new EV when it comes to market, they're really focusing on the high profit, more expensive models, but there are also just some really, really cool features that you cannot get in other cars. Um, so, for example, if you if you look at the Rivian truck, which is the RS1, um, you know, one of the major downsides of a truck is that you have to put everything in the bed. Well, because this is an EV, you have a frunk so you can take the truck, um, you know, on a long trip and have your luggage locked away dry and safe in the front where the engine would be. The other thing is um, between the back seat and the bed on the truck, there is a long 
um, space where, you know, Rivian sells a lot of um, accessories for the use of that space. And it basically runs the entire width of the truck. And so they sell a pullout camping kitchen that you can have there with full on, um, you know, water and a camping stove, um, as well as some other things like, okay, there's like, you can have bags and things put in there. Um, but just overall, the people who have these um, vehicles are raving about them. Um, they have very, you know, high-end design, but very rugged interiors. Um, so if you're considering one and you have the scratch, they are expensive. They start above $70,000. So that is one major, major drawback. Um, but I have only heard good things about them and um, can't wait to get behind the wheel of one. All right, we're gonna go to Scott calling from Portland. Hi, Scott, go ahead. Hi, um, I have a two-part question. They're related. Uh, one is, do you have any advice on a used subcompact electric vehicle? And the related question is, why do you think there has been a dramatic reduction in the availability of, uh, of vehicles in the subcompact market? John? Um, probably the cheapest electric vehicle you could buy is a Nissan Leaf. Um, before used car prices got crazy, you could buy one that was six or seven years old. It, you know, they only had a hundred miles of range on a good day to start off with. So with battery degradation, you might only get 60 or 70 miles range, which might be good enough for most people. Um, and you could buy it for six or $7,000 since then. Now they're up a little bit higher, probably closer to 9,000 for used. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, Hertz recently turned in a bunch of Teslas and those are for sale. You know, you might find a model three. So kind of, a little bit bigger than what you're looking for. And I've seen some of the prices of those at seventeen or $18,000. So that might be an option to go with as well. Um, I would stay away from s some of the early uh, subcompact EVs, um, the Ford Focus and some of the, some of the old technology um, batteries aren't available, parts are not available. So you're buying something that you may find just isn't going to do the job anywhere where with the, the leaf, the leaf's a pretty good, pretty good bargain. And, um, I don't remember the name of it, but there's a, there's a electric only used car lot down in New Hampshire, um, mm. that all they sell is all they sell is used EVs. So it might be worth checking it out and seeing, seeing what it looks like. And you may find there's something there that will fit your needs. Um, and, and John, what about the Chevy Bolt? Um, if you can find one and you, you know, you can, the problem is, you know, you bought that car for 35 to 40,000 and then you got the tax incentives if you qualified. So you could buy that car in certain, in Massachusetts where I live, um, you could buy that car for $19,000. The problem is when people go to sell it, they're asking almost, what the car cost when it was new. So, and, and although there is a used car incentive to with electric vehicles, um, you know, check it out and see what it is, but depends on your budget. I mean, you really have to look at your budget and your needs. Uh, if you're somebody who only drives 30, 40 miles a day, um, there, there are some choices out there. There's not a lot though. Um, and I think part two of the question was, why don't we see more subcompact battery electric yeah. vehicles? I think that was part of it. Um, you got to put the battery somewhere. 
And, you know, the smaller you make the car, the less room you can squish batteries in it. And I think the Bolt does a really good job, you know, 230 miles of range. But uh, big surprise, they're not making it anymore. They mm -hmm. may come back with it in 2025 or 26, maybe. And with GM's rethinking of uh, battery electric vehicles, maybe not. We don't know yet. Scott, thanks for your question. Good luck to you. Um, we're going to move on to Gorham and Laura. Hi, Laura. Go ahead. Hi, um, I am so excited. Somebody qualified can answer this question for me. I have two gas guzzling trucks. One is a, four, uh, excuse me, a Toyota Tundra 2007, and one is a Jeep Wrangler 2013. I would like to put, I would like to just have one of these gas guzzling cars and put my plow, my 7.5 foot light duty Fisher plow onto one of them. I don't know which one to keep it on, but the important part to know is that my Tundra is wonderful and it drives like a luxury couch, but it doesn't pass inspection. I bought it used in New Hampshire only to find out that it wouldn't pass inspection in Maine. And so currently my plow is on the Tundra, but I find myself wanting to use a Tundra and it's not legal to drive more than I don't know, 12 miles away from home. So what would you do? <laughs> okay, Jamie, <laughs> this is such a New I, England question. Which vehicle do I put my plow on? <laughs> Go ahead. I just moved to New Hampshire and used the hey. Tundra since it would pass since it would pass inspection there. And you can still get uh main public radio in New Hampshire, even though NHPR is pretty good too. Um, but no, I mean, I would kind of wonder what would it take for that tundra to pass inspection so you could drive it oh, around. A new body. Oh, a new body. Okay. New well then never mind yeah. that. I mean I would <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would call to get a new body, but they miss out on it. So I didn't get to do that. Okay, well, I mean, I would then have to, you know, you kind of have to go with the Jeep there. I will say, though, like the Jeep is not going to be able to plow as well as a Tundra will. Um, so it really depends on um, and to be absolutely clear, I am no expert when it comes to snow plowing. I am from Virginia, um, but, you know, lived in New Hampshire for a little bit. Um, but like, it's not going to be able to plow as well as a Tundra, but if you're doing a driveway um, that's not too, too long, too, too wide, you should be okay. Um, but I would love to hear what John thinks about this. Um, first off, it's probably not, is it the body that's rusting away or the frame that's rusted away? Oh, uh, it's actually, I think it's the frame. It was part frame, of a recall right. before right, I bought right. it. Yeah. yeah. But they didn't know and, that, and so it was too late yeah. yeah, and what may happen at this point is if you don't fix the frame and it's not passing main inspection, the vehicle's essentially unsafe. So if you got in a crash, the frame is there to protect you and it's not going to do that anymore. So um, I might be tempted to just keep the Toyota as a plow truck only. Don't even register it. Just Keep it in the backyard somewhere and use it when you need it. Um, and then the Jeep, putting a seven and a half foot plow, even even though it's a fairly light duty plow on that Jeep, um, that Jeep's not really made for it. And um, I think you're going to run into some problems. I've done it before. When I worked as a mechanic, I put light duty plows on Jeeps. They taxed them pretty heavily you really need to look at spring changes it's a lot of weight to hang off the front even though it's a light duty plow so neither vehicles are going to be great i think the best option would be just drive the 
drive the Toyota when you need to, when it's snowing and you need to push some snow around. Other than that, maybe think about retiring it because uh, a minor crash at at higher speed with a car with a rotted frame, you could get badly hurt. So, And Laura, I are you only you... planning to plow your own driveway? Yes, I only plow my own driveway. All right. Well, there you go. A thorough answer from the guest. Thank you for calling and good luck to you. Um, An email here. It seems like work trucks are not really designed for working anymore, but are designed to look cool driving in. So many people that I talk to are looking for a four wheel drive efficient truck that is low enough to the ground that you can actually reach over the side and work out of it and not need machinery to lift things. We don't need a million fancy things. We just need practical options for regular folks. Jamie, I see you nodding and nodding. I mean, I'm I'm five two. Like getting into the bed of most trucks is terrible for me. Even with the you know manufacturers be like, oh, we built a step into the bumper. Well, that is at my hip height, so it's quite a large step. Um, I've even stood, you know, in front of a lot of these full-size trucks in my driveway. And when standing directly in front of it, I can barely see over the hood, let alone, you know, see my kids. Um, and so, you know, if you're really looking for like a work truck, that's actually a work truck, you know, it's worthwhile to call the dealership and say, what are the fleet trucks you have for sale? Um, because those tend to be a little bit lower end, you know, they're not going to have the big, you know, full on touch screens and all the bells and whistles and things, because they're meant for, you know, tradespeople to buy, you know, for their fleets and things, they're meant for actual work. Um, but beyond that, I mean, we're seeing a trend here where trucks are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, they're less about work now. And the automakers even acknowledge this, that the trucks they sell are not work vehicles, they're lifestyle vehicles. Um, I know that Ram for the Ram 1500, the majority of their sales are of models that are well over $60,000. So they've moved into luxury lifestyle vehicles. And, you know, to be frank, the automakers are just following where the money is. They don't make as much money off of your basic work truck as they do for a $70,000, $80,000 Dodge Ram that, you know, is kitted out like a a luxury car. Sorry, Ram 1500, not Dodge Ram. Um, So this is something that I think bugs a lot of people. I think it's becoming a real big safety issue because visibility from these giant trucks is just terrible to maneuver around parking lots um, and other kind of low speed areas. So, you know, it's something that we all just kind of have to deal with because that's where the market's gone. But um, if you can find, you know, newer used, a truck that is meant to be a fleet truck, they tend to be a little bit easier to work with because again, they aren't being sold as as lifestyle vehicles, but you may have to work with a dealer to actually find one because most dealers want to stock their lots with the more expensive trucks because they can make more money on them. All right. Well, we have so many more questions, but we're out of time. I really appreciate both of you for giving us an hour today. That was Jamie Page Deaton, Editor-in-Chief of CarTalk.com. Also with us for the hour, John Paul, Senior Manager for Public Affairs and Traffic Safety with AAA Northeast. Today's sound engineer, Sandra Harris. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can visit maincalling.org for our audio archives and to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Again, maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, the latest on efforts to protect and restore Maine's wild Atlantic salmon. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio. Oh,